History of England. I'm David Beeson. The Phoenix Park murders, on which we ended last week's episode, had a massive impact on relations between Britain and Ireland. It hardened the views of many in Britain, and in Ireland too there was considerable revulsion over what was seen as an outrage, not least from Parnell himself, who unequivocally condemned the killings. Even in America, quite a few contributors to the Irish cause decided that they no longer cared to make their contributions through the main pro-Irish bodies, but preferred to provide their support directly to Parnell's organisation, committed as it was to strictly constitutional means. Indeed, over the next three years, Parnell focused above all on bringing as much of the movement as he could around to his idea of constitutional ways of operating, subordinating all other activity to his campaign in Parliament for Home Rule. He'd already managed to pull a great deal of the support of the left of the movement towards himself and could, now, stop devoting as much effort to cultivating that more extreme wing of the nationalist movement. Now he could tack right, securing the support of much of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, quite an achievement for a Protestant, and concentrating on ensuring that the movement that emerged was highly disciplined, by which he essentially meant subservient to his will. He set up systems that combined local authority in the party with centralised control, and then simply let the local organisations fade into insignificance while making sure he got his way. For instance, recommending the candidates for election to Parliament in every constituency, and even intervening when a local body selected a different one. In such situations, his personal presence was generally sufficient, such was the political stature of a man increasingly known as the uncrowned King of Ireland, to persuade local leaders to recognise their error and change their decision to align with his. It's unclear that there was ever a definite agreement, far less a written one, covering the conditions for the release of Parnell from Kilmainham Jail, but contemporaries suppose there was, and baptised it, the Kilmainham Treaty. Parnell was happy to see that expression used, because treaties are usually agreements between nations. What seems to have been tacitly agreed was that Parnell would do his best to calm agitation in Ireland. If successful, the kind of work he was doing to impose a rigid discipline for parliamentary action on his followers would certainly help. In return, the government would endeavour to meet some more demands of the agrarian movement. One such demand was to enable tenants with arrears of rent to benefit from the provisions of the Land Act from which they were excluded. How the government dealt with that problem neatly turns our focus back on Britain and onto the stresses within both the Conservative and Liberal parties. The Conservative Party had been left, you'll remember, in an awkward position after the death of Disraeli. Two men shared the leadership, Stafford Northcote, who led the party in the House of Commons, and Lord Salisbury, who played the same role in the Lords. Northcote wasn't particularly effective, not helped as it happens by having once served as personal secretary to Gladstone, making him something of a personal friend of the man it was his duty to oppose. But that didn't make Salisbury a shoo-in to take over as leader on his own. Many in the party remembered how bitterly he'd opposed the 1867 Reform Act, leading to his falling out with Disraeli, who had sponsored the act. That had opened the door to conflict between them that ended only when they found themselves able to work together far more harmoniously than anyone might have expected in the Disraeli government of 1874-1880. Salisbury needed an issue on which to build his standing in the Conservative Party. 
Even before Parnell left jail, Gladstone provided one by submitting to Parliament an arrears bill that would write off Irish tenant farmers' arrears up to £30, allowing them to turn to the courts for fair rent determinations under the Land Act. The government would compensate landowners for the income lost. Salisbury hit the roof. This undermined the very basis of contractual agreements. People who'd committed to paying a certain amount were suddenly being relieved of that commitment. It also meant that British taxpayers would be paying Irish debts. As he told a public meeting in Essex, is the money of the people of Essex to be taken to pay the debts of the Irish tenant farmer, while the tenant farmer in Essex has been left to face ruin as he may? This was an issue on which he could lead a Conservative campaign that would reinforce his claim to sole leadership of the party. Conservatives had a majority in the Lords. Salisbury therefore felt confident of success when he won the support of his colleagues to making two amendments to the measure, wrecking amendments as they were called, which would leave it in effect without teeth. This they did. After the bill was accepted by the Commons and sent to the Lords, they voted in favour of the two amendments and sent it back. The scene was set to turn the battle between Liberals and Conservatives into a constitutional crisis, pitting the Commons with its elected membership against the Lords owing their places only to birth. We saw before that Salisbury, like many peers, viewed a Commons measure which had been endorsed by a solid majority of voters in a general election as one the Lords should not oppose. But the arrears measure hadn't been an issue in an election, so the Commons had no such overwhelming mandate for it. Gladstone made it clear he would go to the country to ask voters for a new mandate if he couldn't get the bill passed unamended. The Commons duly threw out the Lord's amendments and sent the measure back to them. The ball was in Salisbury's court again. In the meantime, the Royal Navy had gone into action against Arab nationalists in Egypt and bombarded the port of Alexandria. British voters tend to fall in behind a government that's giving Johnny Foreigner a severe lesson in war. Salisbury thought Gladstone might be bluffing in saying he'd called an election. Many of Salisbury's colleagues thought he might not be, and that he might win a new contest. What's more, many of the Lords were major landowners in Ireland. There was something a little appealing, as I'm sure you can imagine, about having the government paying arrears of rent their tenants owed them. Besides, they knew the measure would be popular among the Irish, and the last thing the landowners wanted was renewed agitation on their estates. Salisbury's backing that had seemed so solid began to fritter away, until it became clear that he wasn't going to be able to keep his amendments to the bill. The principle of the matter, it seems, wasn't going to be allowed to take precedence over electoral considerations or the pocketbooks of his fellow Tory peers. He was furious as he told the Lords, I find that the overwhelming majority of their lordships were of the opinion that in the present state of affairs it is not expedient that the arrears bill should be thrown out. If I had the power, I would have thrown out the bill. I find myself, however, in a small minority. In the end, therefore, the wrecking amendments were dropped and the arrears bill passed. Far from having enhanced his status, Salisbury had emerged strangely isolated and in a weaker position to take on Northcote. Now, you may well be wondering what on earth the Royal Navy had been doing in the meantime, bombarding Alexandria. 
Well, Ahmed Orabi, an officer in the army of Egypt, then still technically a province of the Ottoman or Turkish Empire, but in reality under British and French influence, had risen against the nominal ruler, the Khedive, Tufik Pasha. Orabi's goal was far greater autonomy for Egypt. At first, Gladstone had been relaxed in his response, saying that Egypt should be left to the Egyptians. But then there'd been an anti-Christian riot in Alexandria, costing 50 lives, and Urabi had started to fortify the port. Britain and France both felt that this was a threat, though it's not clear to this day why. There was no risk to the Suez Canal. Mostly Urabi seemed more of a force for order than for chaos. The most likely motivation seems to have been that there were huge Western investments in Egypt. The country had run up massive debts, not least of the building of the Suez Canal, and had issued bonds to raise the money. A change might now lead to the country defaulting on those bonds. Many were held in Britain, even by Gladstone himself. Indeed, his biographer Roy Jenkins argues that in today's circumstances, by which he presumably means the circumstances of his own Jenkins times, rather than those of Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, who seem a lot less keen on transparency over their financial concerns, Gladstone would have had to declare his holdings as a personal interest. The fall of a French government led to the French ships sailing for home, leaving the Royal Navy alone outside Alexandria. It responded to the riot by bombarding the city for ten and a half hours. Shelling civilians from the sea was becoming a bit of a British habit, you'll remember, after Copenhagen in 1807, and Canton 50 years later. The Royal Navy destroyed much of Alexandria by fire, and Urabi destroyed much of what was left to prevent it falling into British hands. Britain then sent in troops, and there was some fierce fighting. That culminated in the Battle of Tel el-Kebir on the 13th of September 1882, when the British General Garnet Walsley won a decisive victory over the forces of Urabi. He was captured, and once Gladstone was finally persuaded that there was no justifiable basis for executing him, he was sent into exile in Ceylon, Sri Lanka today. Tufik Pasha was returned to power in appearance, though in reality this was to be the start of some 60 years of British control of Egypt. That military success abroad was a welcome change. Back in 1881, the Boers of the Transvaal in South Africa Seeing that the British had seen off the Zulu threat by defeating the forces under Chief Chetsweo, rose against the suzerainty Britain had claimed over their territory. What followed was a small-scale war involving limited forces and lasting under four months. In shades of the American War of Independence, the Boers had irregular forces, mostly consisting of armed farmers, but they inflicted a crushing defeat over regular British army troops at the Battle of Majuba Hill. Even the British general, George Collie, was killed in this humiliating fiasco. Defeat in this minor, but for the British, galling conflict, which came to be known as the First Boer War, was followed by civil war among the Zulus. By this time, the British authorities in South Africa, which had done Chechweo so much harm when they were fighting against him, had decided that having him rule at least some of his former Zulu kingdom would actually rather suit them. So it was yet another blow when this outbreak of fighting within the Zulu nation cost Chachweo his life too. Overall, therefore, the least we can say is that things hadn't gone well for Gladstone's government in South Africa. 
he might well have felt some relief over success in Egypt. If he did, however, it wasn't for long. In Sudan, then a dependent territory of Egypt, a religious zealot who had taken the title Mahdi, Arabic for the guided one, reserved for a messianic figure in Islam, had risen in revolt. The British government decided not to fight, but to pull out the small force it had stationed in Khartoum. Unfortunately, to see to the withdrawal, it sent out General Charles Gordon, identified by Salisbury as the last possible man to be entrusted with any form of diplomatic mission. He was rather like Robert Bulwer Lytton in India or Henry Bartle Freer in South Africa. Do you remember them from Chapter 136? These were maverick proconsuls devoted to a forward policy of extending the British Empire by military conquest. In both cases, that had ended badly. Indeed, it could be argued that the First Boer War, with its disastrous ending at Majuba Hill, was just the last round of the reckless military adventures Freer launched in South Africa. Well, Gordon was just such another. Instead of pulling people out of Sudan, as he had been ordered, he set himself up in Khartoum. From there, he engaged in a year of what he probably thought was negotiation with the Mahdi, though mostly it consisted of him telling the Mahdi that he simply ought to bow down to British rule. Meanwhile, back in Britain, there was clamour to send a relieving force to Gordon's rescue, but Gladstone procrastinated and procrastinated, letting week after week go by. Finally, he ordered Garnet Wolseley to go and fetch Gordon home. Sadly, Wolseley arrived in Khartoum on the 28th of January 1885, coincidentally Gordon's 52nd birthday. But that was two days too late. The city had been overrun by the Mahdi's forces, and Gordon himself had been killed on the 26th of January. The grand old man, or G.O.M., Gladstone, overnight became the M.O.G., or murderer of Gordon. Not a good look for a Prime Minister near the end of his term in office and looking to secure re-election. But before we look at that election, we need to find out on what basis it was fought, especially as that involves the one great success of this second Gladstone administration, which, incidentally, also had serious implications for the overarching tale of the time, the suffering and resistance of Ireland. That's where we'll pick up the story next week. Thanks for listening.